Well, good morning, Cornerstone, once again. Um, if it's your first time here with us, we're so glad to have you. I'm John, one of the pastors here, and I just want to um, reiterate a bit of what Richard said and prayed for earlier. Um, if you are a mother here today, we are honored to have you, and we're grateful for all the work that you do. And when I use that word, mother, um, we use it in the broadest way, right? So there are those of us who fit days like this of celebration for some or days of mourning for the rest of us. And in a body this size, we have to both weep and rejoice. So um, there's some of you in here that have lost mothers. And today is a day that's hard for you to rejoice in because you think of uh, what you've lost. And we want you to know that you're in our prayers. Um, there's those of you that are in here that um, have had very real, uh, tangible dreams of being a mother um, and have lost the seed that's in your womb. We believe that life begins at conception. So we believe that even though you may not have seen your child, God has, he or she is safe in his arms. You'll see them one day. You are a mother, and we're grateful to have you here. For those that have the desire to be so one day, we pray that God will fulfill that longing because we know that so many of us are the people that we are because of the praying mothers that we've had. So for all of you in here that are mothers, especially those of you that have carried the unique burden of being a single mother for so long, you're seen appreciated and valued grateful to have you here along with the rest of our first time guests and um, so what I want to do is I want to start off today the same way that we do each week is as we stand uh, we would prepare to hear from God's word Matthew chapter 4 Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 um, where we're going to read from. And it says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached, it, or, or, uh, approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become Bread. That word, if, may be better read, since you are the Son of God. Tell these stones to become bread. He answered, it is written, man must, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you. And they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus told him, well, it's also written, do not test the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written. Worship the Lord your God and serve him and serve only him. Then the devil left him 
and angels came and began to serve him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we pray that you would warm our hearts. God, would you provide us help? Father, I pray that we would look in here and see instruction about how you've provided us ways to win against the fight of temptation that all of us are in, and so many of us feel like we're losing, Father. I pray that you wouldn't just give us a pathway towards success, patterns, and principles for us to apply, uh, but I pray that you would lift our hearts up, Father, that you would give us a praise and a song in our hearts as we look closely at your Son, Father. Lord, would you change us today as we spend time in your Word? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, I invite you to take your seats. David, can you reset the clock? It says 35 minutes. and uh, So I know I'm going to go more than that, but I don't want to just disregard it altogether. That'll help me out so that we can get out of here on time for Mother's Day lunch. Temptation. Uh, temptation is an instigator. Y'all have friends that are instigators? They can just cause tension out of nowhere. Things can be good and then things start to go really, really bad. But things can be bad and when they come in, things just get worse. Tension. Temptation is an instigator. It causes tension Nobody is exempt from temptation. And the crazy thing about temptation is it does this. Um, it puts you in a fight with yourself. So I don't know the temptations that you face right now, but uh, temptation tends to create a little bit of a tension that regardless of what you're tempted by, the tension goes a little something like this. I want this. I know I shouldn't want this. God says I can't have this, but I still want it. I don't want to want it. I even try really, really hard not to want it, but I want it. I convince myself that having it is bad for me, but I still want it. I'm tired of fighting against this thing that I know I shouldn't have. I'm tired of this fight, and the fight just doesn't bring me any relief. So do you know what I do? I give in. And the consequences aren't as bad as I thought. So I want it, and I continue to do this thing. Or I give in, and the consequences are worse than I thought, which should make me not want it. But I still want it. Have any of you felt like that when it comes to temptation? Have you been there? Right? Of course you have. And you, you can fill in the blank with what it is, whether it's eating or sex or substances that you shouldn't take or letting your anger and temper flare up, cheating on tests. Or taxes. 
whatever. It's, we all face different temptations, but we find ourselves in the same cycle. And here's the thing about temptation. Um, even if you face it and successfully overcome it, uh, dodging a temptation is not like dodging bullets. It's like dodging a boomerang. You may get out of the way, but do you know what it's just going to do? It's just going to come back until you don't get out of the way. Temptation is an instigator. It brings this fight, and sometimes we get tired of fighting. You've been here. You know that you love God. You love your marriage. You love your kids, your integrity. But you just get tired of fighting against the same temptations. The tension it creates is so much that you feel like one of the ways that I can ease this tension is just to give in. But do you know what you find out? That when you give in to temptation, it doesn't ease the tension. It exaggerates it. It doesn't solve your problems. It creates new ones. You give in to telling a lie, and what it does is it creates this false reality that now you just have to tell more lies to cover up for up. Temptation is never solved by giving in, but it seems like it's this battle and it's this fight that we can't win, but that we all find ourselves in. How do we fight temptation? How do we face it? I think we do it by looking at the only person who has ever successfully beat every temptation that was ever thrown at him. And as we look at him, what we're going to do is we're going to see at least three things, right? We're going to see a pattern for how you and I face temptations. We're going to see somebody who stood in our place when it comes to facing temptation, and we're going to see the power that we have to face temptations. The pattern, somebody that stood in our place and the power. You don't face temptation or fight it successfully by staring your temptation in the eye and with resolve trying to overcome it. The reason why we're going through the gospel of Matthew is because if we're going to succeed in the Christian life, it's not going to come from the strength of your resolve. It's going to come in how well you can see Jesus. And so what we're trying to do from now until the end of the year is paint this beautiful, clear picture of Christ so that as you see him and look at him, you can live uh, how he lived. And so as we set a little bit of context, I really want to help y'all understand how it is that you look at the Gospels. Matthew chapter 1 or, or 4 verse 1, it starts off with this one word. And do you know what that word is? Then. Do you know what that word does? It tells you that this is part of a larger story. It's a continuous story, right? Uh, Think of this more like uh, your favorite show that you watch that may go an entire season or seasons, and it's one long story, um, not a sitcom, 
right? So many folks come to the Gospels and they treat it like a sitcom, right? You remember Full House or Family Matters, where you had the same characters from week to week, but it didn't matter where you jumped in. You, you could just jump in and pick up on, on what was left off. So it's like we come into the Gospels and we read that the same way. Jesus fed 5,000 people this week. Come back next week and see what takes place when his friends leave him behind on a boat and he has to cross the sea, right? The Gospels aren't meant to be treated like a sitcom. They're meant to be treated like a, a continuous whole. And so the very first thing that I want you to see when we look at this word then is what comes before it. Matthew 3, 17 says this. After Jesus is baptized, it says this, in a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So what we see is God looking at Jesus and saying, this is him. I've got pleasure in him. This is my son. Verse 4.1 says this, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What this does is when you read this as a whole, it messes with our categories of what we think God's pleasure looks like. God looks down at him and we see that God's pleasure rests uniquely on Jesus. And do you know what we see in the next scene? Him being led into a very, very dry place, hungry. And this messes with our categories, especially those of us that are middle class and aren't used to these two things being held together that God can be good and I can have a very real, legitimate longing. God's goodness doesn't always mean a full stomach. God's goodness doesn't always mean plenty. And if we try to wed those two, we're going to believe some very, very bad things about God, which can be very, very tragic. Jesus gets this truth. And what we find is after he's declared to be God's son, God leads him into this unique place of testing where he's tempted by Satan, and again, for those of us that are Western and grow up middle class, the very thing that this story hips us to, and I'm not trying to be mystical, I'm trying to be real and to remind us that we live in a spiritual world with spiritual realities. Your biggest problems are not your most visible problems. There is an entire world or realm that lies behind all of what we can see that the Bible would say is actually more real than the things that we see, the things that we can touch and taste, that the things that we can see and touch and taste, they will be gone, they're temporary. But there is a spiritual world that lies behind all of this that is eternal, and those are the most important realities. So when it comes to temptation or trying to live faithfully, if you and I live as if our biggest problems are the people that are standing right in front of us, we're not going to live very well in this world. 
we have a real enemy who is not all-knowing, but he knows a whole lot about you. He knows your pressure points. He knows where you have legitimate longings. You do not have a poker face that can fool him. So we find ourselves in this story, Jesus being tempted by Satan. And we're going to look at this like a magic eye. Yeah, you remember those things, right? When, when I was young in the newspaper, there was a picture and it just looked like a row of ducks or a row of plants. And you look at it and there's obvious things that come up. But then if you like held your nose up to it and looked closely and then pulled it away from your face, you saw this like 3D picture that was this deeper meaning. That's what this is going to be like. So, so what we're going to do is we're just going to go through this story three times. And the first thing that, that we're going to see are the things that are obvious. It's going to be helpful. Jesus as our pattern. Let's start there. Jesus as our pattern for facing temptation. Um, I'm not handy by any stretch of the means, but if I get something from Ikea, you would swear I was a carpenter, right? Because I pull all the nuts and bolts out of the box, and then what I do is I take this handbook, and I look at the little Swedish Ikea men that tell me how to do things, and they serve as my pattern to put this together. It's not the main point of this text here, but it is one main point of the text here, that Jesus becomes our pattern for facing temptation. And I just want to walk you through this real quick. The very first thing that we see here is that Jesus runs into a lot of the same temptations that we do. Look here at verse 3. He's tempted. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The very first thing that we're going to have to see um, is when somebody says something or speaks, the most important thing is not the exact words that they use. It's what they mean by the words that they use. You've been in convos where somebody has said something and you say, what did you mean by that? And if they just repeat what they said, what you say, no, 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 no. You just repeated what you said. What did you mean? There's something else that you mean. So what Satan does is he comes in and look. His, his words here are this, verse 3. If you are the son of God or since you're God's son, tell these stones to become bread. What he means by this is if you're really God's son and God really has pleasure in you, then you have no business being hungry. If God really loves you, all your desires should be fulfilled, shouldn't they? The next temptation, verse 6, and he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against any stone. What he does is he quotes from Psalm 91, where it's this verse that talks about God being a refuge for those that are his. 
So if his first temptation says this, God's love means that you should be free from hunger, here's what he says here. Uh, God's love means that your life should be free from hazards. That I thought God loved you, right? If God loves you, let's prove it and put it to the test. Put yourself in harm's way and see if God will come and save you. Then the third temptation, verses 8 and 9, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, look, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Here's what he's saying to him. God's plans for your life can be hurried. There's a shortcut to where God's trying to take you. And I'm the one that can take you there. All it's going to take is a little bit of spiritual compromise for you to have the political and economic gain that you want. The ends justify the means. Jesus is tempted in very real ways. But look, and again, we just want to look at what's obvious. How does he triumph, right? With, with the first one, what he says is, uh, verse 3 Since you're God's son, tell these stones to become bread. Verse 4, Christ says this. It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What he says is, I do have a legitimate longing, but I'm not going to take matters into my own hands to fulfill it. I'm going to wait. I'll wait on God. I can trust him. God can satisfy me. God sustains When Satan says that his life should be free from trouble, verse 7, Christ says this. It is also written, do not test the Lord your God. What he's saying is, I know that God can and will protect me, and I know it so well that I don't have to put him to the test. I'll wait for trouble to come, and I'm confident that he's going to save me. And the last one, right, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. What he says is, listen, God's going to give me all that I hope for and more. I don't need to compromise my worship of him to take this shortcut. Jesus is tempted. He responds to temptation, and and look here at the end, verse uh, uh, 11. Then the devil left him, and look, and angels came and began to serve him. Do you know what we see there? Jesus didn't give in to temptation. He responded with God's word, and do you know what God did? God provided for him in a miraculous way. And you look and you say, well, John, that's obvious. And I say, I know. Matthew's trying to drive this point. And the point that he's trying to drive is this. Look, temptation is going to bring tension. That tension is never eased by giving into it. 
but it's always eased by holding out and waiting for God to do his thing. Temptation is never eased by giving in, but it's always solved by holding out and waiting on God. Here's what Satan does, all right? Let me use for the third week in a row a fighting analogy. I'm not a fighter. I'm a reader, but I'm good at being able to read about stuff and bring it in here. The quickest way to get knocked out in a fight um, is to be overcome by misdirection. Roy Jones Jr., he used to do this all the time. For those of you all that have watched him, sometimes he'd sit in box and he'd just stick out his right arm here. And as soon as the person looked at his right arm, he'd hit him with the left. This is what Satan does when it comes to temptations. And here's what I mean by, by that. If you think that the biggest fight in temptation is about rules and regulations, things to do and things not to do, if that's the realm that you're starting to fight in, let me tell you, you've already lost. Temptation is not at all about just trying to keep rules and not trying to break them. As Satan is tempting Jesus, in the first two temptations, he's not tempting him to break any commandments. He's very subtle. He's crafty. He's not going after rules Do you know what he's trying to attack? Relationship. Relationship uh, uh, with God. And he's so crafty that he's not even coming outright trying to convince Jesus of God's badness. All he's trying to do is make him and us suspicious of God's goodness. And that's all that it takes. Just a little bit of suspicion that God is not as good as he says that he is. And once that relationship is fractured, then it's the breaking of rules that follow. Here's what I mean. The first temptation, he's saying, turn these bread into stones. What he's saying is, yo, you're out here hungry. How can you be God's child and have a legitimate Longing. God has not provided for you in the way that he should have. So do you know what you need to do? You need to take matters into your own hands. The next temptation, what he says is, how can you be absolutely sure that God is going to protect you in the future? Here's what you need to do. You need to put yourself in harm's way. So that you can really make sure that God loves you. All that he's saying is, no, listen, you can't be sure that God loves you. So what you have to do is you have to step into the driver's seat and force God to define his love on your terms, not his. Different strokes back in the day. uh, uh, It was this show about these uh, two black boys that was adopted by Philip Drummond. And there was this one episode where... Willis and Arnold doubt the love of their father, so they run away from home. They go back to the hood that they came from, and they say, if he really loves us, then he's going to come back and pick them up. Well, it was a sitcom, so we came back and picked them up and showed his love. But this is what so many of us tend to do. We define God's love 
on our terms, not his. The last temptation is he just comes right out with it and says, worship me and I'll give you what you want. And what you see in in all of those is that every temptation was about Jesus using his power and privilege to satisfy personal needs, listen, in the present. It's not that God prohibited Jesus from turning, from bringing bread out miraculously. Because he's going to do that later on. It's not that God wasn't going to send angels to care for Jesus. He does it at the end of this story. It's not that God wasn't going to set up Jesus as ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You read the last verses of the gospel of Matthew. Jesus comes back and says, I have all authority on in heaven and on earth. The problem was Satan tries to make us doubt God's provision so that we think if these things are going to take place, they've got to take place now. We can't wait on God. We can't trust in him. We can't hope in him. And so as Jesus is responding to these temptations, he's not just sitting here in the realm of trying to, all right, God said, I can't do this and I can't do this. He's not sitting in the realm of prohibition. What he's advocating for is patience. Yeah, it's not no, it's just no, no, not now. God's going to do it in his own time. Not now. I can wait on God. Not now. God has a purpose for my hunger and the legitimate longings that I have that I cannot see right now so I don't have to take matters into my own hands. Not now. God will protect me when I find myself in harm's way. And even if he doesn't, what we see in the life of Christ is that God can raise the dead. So, not now. I don't need a shortcut to God's plan at all. Have you ever thought about that? When facing temptations, do you find yourself in a losing battle because you spend all of your time trying to keep rules and not break others? Have you ever taken a step back and just asked, what's underneath my desire to do this? Right? Listen, what's stealing? other than the symptom of somebody who doesn't believe that God will provide for their needs and thinks that the answer is in something that I don't have that, that, that I can get. What's anger and lashing out at somebody other than disbelieving that God's going to protect me when I'm wrong? I think many of us have wrongly assumed that we're entitled by virtue of being God's child to living lives without hunger, free from trouble, 
and we feel that if we're going to be obedient to God, that it shouldn't cost us anything. Jesus reveals, as somebody who uniquely had God's pleasure, all of those are false. That what we need to do is take God at his word, hold out, and wait on him. So that's it. Those are the tools that you need. Be patient. Wait on God. Just go home, be patient, and you'll be fine. I'm not getting any amens because you know that. But that's hard, John. It's simple, but simple isn't always easy. What we find out, what temptation helps to reveal to us, is that I think there's something broken inside of us. That it's not just that we make bad choices, it's that there's something that keeps us from being able to make good ones consistently. So here's what I mean by that. Temptation is wanting something that is bad for you. Even if you aren't a follower of Jesus and you're not into defining moral absolutes, um, you know that there are certain things that are bad for you, certain things that will mess up your life. And what temptation does is it says, that I, I, I want these things. Though I know it'll mess up my life, though I know it'll wreck me, though I know I don't need to be in that relationship, though I know that I don't need to spend time with that person, though I know that I don't need to partake in that, though I know that I don't need to lash out like that, I know that it's going to be bad, I know it's going to end up wrong, but I still find myself wanting it. Isn't that a trip, how you and I can know something is going to be self-destructive, and even with all the willpower that you have inside to stay away from that thing that you know will kill you, you use all of your willpower, and you still fail in being able to stay away from it. It's a testament, look, that there is something wrong on the inside of us, and do you know what the Bible calls that? Sin. Sin, by its very nature, it's suicidal. And we know that it's wrong, but we can't stay away from it. So when the Bible is going to talk about sin, it's going to say this, that we are enslaved to sin. Which means that it's not a fluke that you and I want the things that are going to be harmful because Satan has successfully tempted Every human being that has ever existed, regardless of race, gender, or, or orientation, background, privilege, and he's made every one of them fall because it's like gravity. So what we find out is we, just, we don't just need a pattern to be able to face temptation. We need a person that's going to free us from the power of sin that's in our lives. Listen, 
that's what this story is all about. The patterns are great, helpful, but they're useless. Two years ago, this movie came out. Uh, It was called Get Out, and it was, right, the story, the obvious story was about a guy, dated somebody, got into a bunch of trouble, and he had to get out. That's it in a nutshell, right? (laughs) But after you watched it, um, so, you know, saw it the first time, stepped out, went online, and I read thought pieces and articles and all this stuff, and people, including the director, brought out, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, it was just about that, uh, but this guy was actually a symbol for a larger group of folks. I put this character in there as a representative for a larger group. So if you don't read all of what he says before that, you'll get to the movie and you'll enjoy it, but you won't really get the point of it. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing all of that up because that's how your Bible is put together. That if you just jump in and read this, it's, oh, this is great. Jesus faced temptation by trying to wait on God's best for him. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home and try to wait on God's best for me. And what you're going to do is try and try and try. You may dodge a few temptations here and there, but you haven't dodged bullets. You've dodged boomerangs that are, come, that are going to come by and blindside you. What we need more than just patterns is a person to stand, to stand in the gap for us. And so here's what takes place. If you read this story with the rest of the Bible in mind, it shows that this is not just a story about a pattern to face temptation. It's a story about a person who stood in our place to face temptation. Verses 1 through 3 says this, look, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. After Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, and he was baptized, he was led into the wilderness and fasted for a period of 40 days. That sounds good, unless you read the author's intention. In Exodus, do you know what God does? God takes Israel and declares Israel to be his son. God's going to take Israel and declare him to be his son, and and do you know what God will do? God's going to baptize them in the Red Sea, bring them from death to life in the Red Sea. Then what God's going to do is God is going to lead his chosen son, Israel, into the wilderness. In the wilderness, Israel is going to wander for 40 years while God provides them bread. So what Matthew is trying to do here is to say, no, no, this is not just a story about what Christ did, therefore you go and do the same thing. This is a story about Jesus standing in the place of Israel because Israel, when faced with temptation, did the exact same thing that you and I did. Do you know what that was? They failed. 
if you think that I'm making too much of that point, then what you have to do is you have to look at the temptations. Three things that they are tempted to do. Think that God doesn't love them because they're hungry and they don't have bread. Israel did that. Putting God to the test. Saying God really doesn't love them and they have to define God's or God has to prove his love on their terms, not on his. That they're going to disregard that God saved them, cared for them, delivered them. And they're going to say, well, God, you really don't love us because we don't have meat, water. And then lastly, Israel was tempted in the wilderness with worshiping another God, idolatry. Satan comes with all three of those tests, and I just want you to see this. Um, Satan is not creative. Karen Ellis said this. He is the best marketer. He's going to take the same temptations and repackage them over and over and over. It's like Disney, right? It's the same movies and over and over. But listen, it's not just that Jesus was tempted like Israel. It's not just that he was led by them. We talked about how Jesus triumphed by use of the scriptures, but here's what I want you to see. The particular scriptures that Jesus cites from is Deuteronomy 6 to 8. Let me put that in perspective. There are 929 chapters in the Old Testament. Jesus uses three of them. Let me put that in more perspective. There are 780,000 plus words in the Old Testament. And Jesus chooses 33 from this narrow piece of Scripture. What is Deuteronomy 6 to 8 state? It's a recounting of Israel being led into temptation in the wilderness, and failing. So as Jesus is battling Satan here, do you know what he does? He's proving that he's standing in our place. He's proving, look, he's the representative for all of us. Look, you're standing with God. Your right standing with God. Your righteousness with God is not based primarily on how well you have withstood temptation. Do you know why? Because all of us have fallen to it. So what Jesus does is he comes in and what he says is I'm going to be the representative. I'm going to stand in the place of them and do what nobody else could do at a disadvantage. So what you have is Israel being fed for 40 years in the wilderness, being miraculously provided for by God. Scholars say close to two and a half million people crossed that Red Sea and saw waters parted. And when they were tempted to doubt God, they couldn't get a majority to convince the rest that God is trustworthy. 
Jesus passes this test in the wilderness, hungry by himself. You look at the beginning of your Bible, and Adam and Eve are in a garden with plenty of other food options, and Satan comes to tempt them, right, not just to break God's rule, but to be suspicious of God's goodness. And they're in a garden with other food options, and they fail the test. Jesus is in a desert by himself, hungry, and he passes God's test. In one way, what Jesus does is unique. Or in one way, what he does is a pattern for how you and I are to face temptation to trust God's word. But in another way, what he does is unique because he does it on behalf of those of us that haven't trusted God's word. Those of us that have been convinced that God isn't good to us, that God isn't good because we've had a legitimate longing for children, and we try to go about it the right way, and it hasn't happened, and we look out at the lives and compare our scenario with people that aren't trying to walk with God and they have what we want and we come to the conclusion that God can't be trusted and we have to take matters into our own hands. For all of us that have fallen prey to temptation, Jesus doesn't just come down from heaven and tell us to get our act together. He comes down from heaven He stands in our place. He does what we couldn't have done. It's not just that he does what we couldn't have done, but what you'll find is that when Jesus is on the cross at the end of his life, in danger, in the scenario where he could have called for angels to come and help him, What you have is a crowd of people echoing the same words of Satan. If you're God's son, why don't you get down off the cross and save yourself? And Jesus could have used his power, his privilege, his special status as God's son to save himself. Decided not to because he knew that the only way for him to save us was for him not to save himself. The only way for him to present a group of people who constantly choose the very thing that's going to be the death of us is to ensure that he went before us and took that death so that when we stand in front of God, we don't have to plead to the resume of things that we've done and haven't done but we get a chance to plead for his. I want you to look here at verse 9 with me. It says this, And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, 
Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Here's what Satan told him. What Satan meant by this was, Jesus, you've come to be the king of the earth. And here's what I want to give you. I want to give you a more easy and comfortable way to get God's best for your life. He essentially promised Jesus a crown without him having to bear a cross. And notice Jesus' response. Worship God and serve him only. What we see in this is that the worship of God is going to cost you something. And that thing that it's going to cost you is your entire life. Make no mistake about it. When God calls us to worship him, he's calling us to give him our entire life and allow him to dictate not just the end of the journey, but the route that we're going to take to get there. It is costly. It's always going to be costly for everybody. Listen, but it's worth it. What Jesus does by refusing this temptation is he helps to show you and I that when we give into temptation, we never win because we always give up more than we can get. If Jesus would have fallen succumbed to this temptation, he may have gotten rule of the kingdoms of the earth, but do you know what he would have lost? The authority of the heavens. Satan will hold out to us a gift and want us to be so enamored by what we see in his hand that, that, that like Nick said this, this, this past week, we forget the person whose hand that it's in. Jesus stood in our place. Jesus lived a life that was marked as this steady stream of stuff that flows from here. Jesus defeated Satan here so that you and I would know that as he lived his life, he's going to come out victorious. That's why through the rest of the Gospels, you see the ease with which he casts out demons and responds to, 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 to a folk. He beats the big boss here, and he lives this life of victory. And I want you all to hear this. Right? Here's, the, here's some of the best news. You and I can look at this and say, well, John, that's great. I'm glad that he did this and stood in my place. But he was God. Of course he did that. Do you know what the best news of this story is? Is that Jesus successfully resisted Satan, not as God, but as a hungry, tired man. The resources that he used to win this battle 
you have. The Spirit of God that raised him from the dead, what Paul's going to say for those of us that have put our trust in Christ, we have that same Spirit. The Word of God that he used to resist the devil, we have. That's why James is going to say, or Peter's going to really say, rather, resist the devil and he'll flee. Jesus is not just our pattern. He hasn't just stood in our place, but he gives us power. Hebrews says this, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And that would be good news in and of itself, but it goes on and says this, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Before Christ comes, before he came, you and I found ourselves in a battle with temptation that we couldn't win. Since he's come and defeated this foe, on his own, in our place. He's offered us the power and ability to do the same, to walk in the same footsteps. So if we'll stare at him, if we'll find ourselves patient, motivated out of what he did, if we'll find ourselves as a group of people leaning into his spirit, his word, and his people, and not just confessing our sins, but confessing our temptations, not just to one another, but to him, what we'll find is that God, God's word is true. That we can approach his throne of grace boldly and find the help that we need to live the type of lives that cause people who give in to every temptation and find themselves less than satisfied to look at a group of people who hold out and find themselves fully satisfied in God's word and God's word alone. The tension that temptation brings is not going to be cured as we give in. It's going to be cured as we hold out. Christ has been our pattern. He stood in our place, and he's provided us power. Let's pray for the strength to walk that out. Father, we pray that you would provide us what we lack. Give us power where we feel weak. Help us to be reminded, um, Lord, that you walked before us. Your son Jesus teaches us what it means to be human, Father, what it means to rely on you fully in our weakness. Father, I pray that we would be reminded that your love for us may not always be seen in displays of great power as much as it's seen in the way you preserve us through our weakness.
Help us to rely on you and to experience true strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray.